welcome to Easter at Valley Church. I'm so happy that each and every one of you are here. If we haven't met before, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you didn't know it, this is only our second in-person Easter gathering. I don't want to talk about it. We don't talk about it anymore. Thanks to COVID. Yeah. Um, This is our second one. So I just feel really thrilled that we have another Easter together as a church family. And it's just going to be wonderful. Today we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. In my experience, or at least in my um, opinion, I think the resurrection is often underexplained. So not necessarily under-celebrated, because we celebrate it hard every year at Easter, which is great. Not under-celebrated, but under-explained. So we do a good job of explaining and kind of understanding the death of Jesus. In fact, I think you could ask a lot of people that don't believe in Jesus, non-Christians, to explain the significance of Jesus' death, and they might be able to kind of get around what that means. They might be able to talk about Jesus' sacrifice, the forgiveness of sins, that sort of thing. But I don't know that the same could be said about the resurrection, maybe even among Christians. My guess is that most Christians would say the resurrection is important because something like it proves God's power. And so on Easter, we kind of generally marvel at the miracle that Jesus was raised, which is great. We should do that. But I'd love for us to talk today like one specific angle of why it matters. Why is it so special that Jesus was raised? And so we're going to look at one particular passage today. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It is rather long. We're not going to do like a deep dive on every single line in it. We're going to overview it. But it's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to read certain portions of it today. And I'm going to start with verses 1 through 8. I'm going to read those verses, and we'll do like a few chunks at a time. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here's what he received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born, or some of your translations say untimely born. So Paul is reminding this church, the Corinthian church, about the like core, essential, concrete truths of the gospel. And they're listed out there. It's really, I find it fascinating. Uh, The phrase that Paul uses in verse three, what I received, I passed on to you. Those specific words when used together indicate like a very firm oral tradition. So this is like an early, early Christian church creed that they would have shared with one another, like the very simplest way that they would have shared the gospel at the very beginning, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, that he was raised. All this in accordance with the scripture. This is like the early way that the church presented the gospel. And then he appeared to people, not just to Peter, not just to the disciples, but over 500 people saw Jesus. 
many of whom are alive. Paul gives us that note, I think, so that if you were reading this around that time that the letter was circulating, you could go ask for proof, like, hey, Paul said that people saw Jesus resurrected. Is that true? Did you see them? So they had eyewitnesses that they could go ask about it. Paul is establishing this kind of baseline gospel about Jesus' death, resurrection, and appearances because apparently there were people in this church in Corinth at this time who were saying that resurrection isn't a thing. (laughs) Now there is a rich network of scriptures in the Old Testament that talk about the people of God being raised, being resurrected, and even another network of scriptures that talk about the Messiah being raised. Um, But this church, for some reason, was calling into question this doctrine that people linked and kind of on God's team would come back to life at the end of the age. And they were questioning that this this won't happen. Um, They weren't necessarily attempting to kind of like discredit Jesus or to abandon following him, but they were simply kind of honing in on this one thing called the resurrection of the dead. They were saying people don't come back from the dead, which is not a ridiculous thing to think or to say. We would generally agree with that. People don't usually come back from the dead. But they were doubting this idea of a future resurrection for the people of God. And that's what Paul is addressing in the rest of this passage. We're gonna jump to verse 12 now. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses or liars about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. It's a rather intense passage. Um, Paul is basically saying, listen, we've been preaching this gospel to you from the beginning. How I received it, I passed it on to you about Jesus, how can you say there's no resurrection? It was in here from the beginning, there's eyewitnesses, we saw him. What Paul is doing is he is linking the resurrection of Jesus with the concept of a resurrection, a future existence for the people of God. He's saying if there's no such thing as a a future resurrection for God's people that we've all learned about in the Old Testament, then, then not even Christ was raised. And if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, This whole thing that we call Christianity is a sham. Our faith is useless, we are liars, and he says, importantly, we are still dead, like Jesus, in our sins. So this verse, like, should really, really radically influence the way we think about what it means to be saved and and how Jesus saves us. We talk a lot of game about the... um, the blame that was placed on Jesus on the cross on our behalf, the punishment that he took for us, the sacrifice that he made to atone for our sins, which is true and wonderful. But it's true because of the resurrection. Without the resurrection, Jesus' death would just be another execution of a blasphemous would-be Messiah. But it was so much more than that. I'm gonna take a like, 
two-minute side note on these two concepts of theology that are really wonderful. Um, one is the victory of Jesus, and one is the vindication of Jesus, which his resurrection solidifies. So the first is victory in going to the cross and in dying. Jesus actually went to battle on our behalf. So Colossians 2.15 says that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities. That's the New Testament speak for the devil and his demons. Jesus disarmed the power and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And in the rest of the context of Colossians 2, it's not just his death on the cross, but also his resurrection that is solidifying this whole victory that Jesus did battle for us when he died and uh, rose again. So he is our, our, our victor. And the second his vindication, Romans 1, 4 says that Jesus, through the spirit of holiness, was, a, was appointed the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. So he is vindicated in all that he said and claimed and did as Jesus Messiah by his resurrection. And Jesus made a lot of claims about himself and the work that he was doing. And a lot of claims were also made about Jesus by Pharisees and people and would-be followers of him. Some accused him of being in league with the devil. Some thought he was crazy and out of his mind. Some accused him of being a glutton and a drunkard, of hanging out with the wrong people. Some thought that he was blasphemous, claiming to be God or to have authority that only God had. Some thought he was a rebel trying to stir up um, trouble. And then some also thought he was a good guy, but just, just a prophet. Jesus called himself the Son of Man and the Messiah, and he healed people, and he forgave people of their sins, or he, he pronounced forgiveness for these people. He um, exercised authority over demons, and then he gave his disciples the same thing, to exercise authority over Satan and demons and sickness. Um, so a lot of these claims, uh, all of them would have been worthless had Jesus stayed dead. He would have been a liar. But his resurrection proved that the sacrifice that he made on the cross made him victorious over Satan's ammo. And what he, Satan has to fire against us is death. So the resurrection proved Jesus' victory and also vindicated him, proved that his life and his ministry and his words were true. It makes me think of this kind of another side note within the side note. These like moments I now consider like foreshadowing earlier in the life of Jesus, um, like when he told the paralytic man uh, that your sins are forgiven and the Pharisees are around, are around there and they're freaking out because they're like, only God has the authority to forgive sins, so why are you saying this blasphemy? And then Jesus says, okay, well, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or pick up your mat and walk? And so Jesus says that you all that are, the crowd that are listening to him, he says that you all may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He tells the guy, pick up your mat and walk, and then he does. Um, it's almost to me, when I think about the resurrection of God, is this, it's as God is saying, what is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, and I'm about to make all things new? Or raise Jesus from the dead and show you that that's true? The resurrection of Jesus is so that we may know that everything Jesus claimed, his authority to forgive and the efficacy of his sacrifice as the spotless lamb who took our place, that it's true and it's proven true um, by Jesus's victory over Satan, sin, and death. Back to 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's Paul's language for died. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So Paul kind of fights back to these resurrection naysayers. Jesus was in fact raised from the dead, Paul says. And then he brings us into this kind of metaphor and analogy that he's gonna use throughout the rest of the passage. Um, and brings a beautiful, rich piece of um, theology for us to understand about Adam and Jesus and, what, and really what the resurrection means and why it's important. So the idea that we just read in 20 through 23 is that we, as humans, inherit bodily decay and sin and death. Just by being human, we are born with a bend to not do what God wants us to do and also with a bend to eventually die. In the same way that death simply comes by being a human, like Adam, so does Jesus share his life with us. So simply by being united with Christ, we also receive his resurrected life. So in this passage, Paul brings up this really special metaphor to help us understand the importance of the resurrection. He calls Jesus the first fruit. So as I understand it, the first fruit in agricultural kind of far farming terminology, the first fruit is the earliest crop. So you see this first fruit and you know what kind of fruit is it and how good is this harvest going to be? And the first fruit is the indication of what's to come. So Paul says that in Jesus, we have seen the first fruit, meaning that we ourselves are the harvest that is to come. We share in the power and the life that raised Jesus from the grave. And we too one day will also come to fruition. So Paul goes on, goes on to answer what might be the next question in someone's mind. And he does it a little while later in the passage. So we're gonna jump ahead to verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. There's all sorts of like weird language. It's easy to get lost in that. But Paul is keeping with this first fruit metaphor and talking about how seeds are designed to go into the ground and to die and then to sprout new life. Something far, far greater than the seed itself. So Paul says in the same way that there are seeds and fruit so are there earthly bodies that we have and heavenly bodies that are the fruit that comes from the seeds. He elaborates on this a bit more in verses 42. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. 
It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a.k.a. Jesus, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. He's still just contrasting Adam and Jesus. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. Just like Adam is, so are we. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man, Jesus. So these bodies that we have are perishable, clearly. We experience decay and death very much, much more than we would like. But what will come back up, I think literally out of the ground, is imperishable and glorious and powerful. In the same way that we share the image of Adam now, in our humanity, our brokenness and our sin and the fact that we will die, um, how much more will we share in the life that Jesus proved in his resurrection as he gives it to us? So this is quite simply, I, I think, the main reason why the resurrection is so important and why it matters. Jesus' resurrection was like the play button or the first domino in the line that triggers and has set in motion the renewal of everything. It is the first step to us individually becoming like Jesus and also the first step for our world and everything that's broken about it being made new and made right. And we have to follow Jesus in death and dying to ourselves now as we like decide to follow him and also physically dying so that we can also follow him in his resurrection and be raised to share in his new life. And so a strange thing to remember this Easter, but the point is that you are a seed, a seed that at some point is going to perish into the ground. And because God is powerful enough to raise Jesus as the first fruit of resurrection life, we now have proof. We have an example of what is to come for all of us who are in Christ. Physical, bodily, holistic resurrection. But like what an apple is to an apple seed, so will these bodies be to what will be raised. So I just want you, if you're willing to, um, imagine that you're like looking in the mirror at yourself. Think about what makes your body um, feel and look human. Scars and body aches and pains. Think about your health, sicknesses that you've had. I have tendonitis in my left elbow. I have a scar on my wrist from when I broke my arm and had to have it repaired with surgery. My throat hurts. I have a headache. <laughs> what about you? <laughs> I feel very human right now. But now think about the not physical parts of you, your mind and your attitude and your tendencies and your behaviors. 
the things about you that you wish were not true about you. Every single part of our human existence has been touched, it's been pervaded by sin. And sin brings death and decay. And in this very church family, we have illness and cancer and disease and depression and anxiety, injuries, bodies that are broken and hearts that are broken and aches and pains. These are things that we simply cannot escape and also cannot always fix. Are you happy yet? <laughs> to put it very simply, there are, there are things about ourselves that we don't like, things that we would like to change if we could, things that are not supposed to be. It is the curse of humanity and sin, and it is a brokenness of epic proportions, and it is called sin. Not necessarily like the bad things that we do sin, but the cancer that has infected every part of our existence. That's what I mean by sin. So these human lives that we have right now are like a seed, a seed that will go into the ground. And that's why the resurrection of Jesus is so amazing and important is because he showed us what we will become. He was the first fruit, the indication of the harvest that is coming for all those who are in Christ. He's the proof of the life and the power of God to raise people from the dead. He started with Jesus and he will also resurrect us. In the same way that we carry Adam's humanity right now and all that that means, so will we bear the image of Jesus. It's important to remember also that the resurrection is um, one of those already and not yet realities. It is something that starts when we decide to follow Jesus and we say, Jesus, you are my Lord and my King and my Master. That resurrection process starts inside but also won't be finished until Jesus returns and we are raised like him. I think this is what Paul means in Philippians 1.6 when he says, he's confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Um, similarly, in Colossians 3, verse one through four, Paul says, since then you have been raised with Christ. So Paul sees our being raised with Christ as happened now, sort of, because Jesus was raised and we share in Jesus's resurrection. Um, since you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So it started. We have been raised with Christ because Christ was raised and we're hidden, tucked away in Jesus and we have these new regenerated hearts that actually now can decide and choose to follow Jesus. And though it's hard, we have the Spirit of God within us to help us wage war against the brokenness that we still live in. We can and we do um, become more like Jesus in this life. But there will be a decisive moment where we be will become what we will be forever. We will be physically raised out of this perishable seed form into an imperishable, uh, sinless body. Let's finish out 1 Corinthians 15. We'll go ahead to verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash 
in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our victory is through Jesus. Our life is through Jesus. That's what we celebrate on Easter. Not just the miracle that God is powerful enough to raise a person, but that we share in that victory and we share in that resurrection. Jesus as the first fruit of what is to come for us, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus and pledged our allegiance to him as our king. Romans 10, 9, a verse you've probably all heard before, says if you confess with your mouth or declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. It's an important part that we can't forget that part of that salvation formula, if you will, I don't love that word, includes the belief that God raised Jesus from the dead. It says then you will be saved. And the salvation promise is not just a you will have your sins forgiven, it is also a God will raise you too promise. And so, if you've never thought about this before, um, maybe you have never decided to follow Jesus, or if it's been a while since you've thought about it, I just want you to think about this God who has done something about the brokenness that you feel and experience every day. Not only is he aware of it, but he has done something about it. The brokenness that you feel and also the brokenness that you see and experience in the world, he is not distant or uncaring. He entered into the brokenness in the person of Jesus. Jesus took on all of our brokenness and the brokenness of the world on the cross and he took it with him into the grave and beat it and was victorious, rose from the dead, claiming victory over this brokenness that we experience as humans and promises a renewed and restored world and a new and restored, resurrected human experience for all who trust in him. So as we close, if you'd be willing, would you close your eyes? Um, this might be strange, maybe not. You can tell me after. <laughs> Imagine dying, or as Paul puts it, falling asleep. Hopefully in old age and in no pain. <laughs> And then imagine waking up from death. I imagine it might feel like waking up as a kid, gaining consciousness on Christmas morning, where you awake and you yawn and you rub your eyes and then it hits you like, oh, it's, it's not just any other day, it's Christmas. And you know what's waiting for you out in the living room. Imagine regaining consciousness in the new heaven and the new earth in God's kingdom. Imagine remembering that you had died. Imagine looking down then at yourself and realizing that you have been raised to new life in a new imperishable body. Imagine ob observing 
and walking around a world that is pure beauty and no brokenness. Imagine being alive and seeing the face of Jesus. This is the story that we are living in. I'm convinced that it is reality. And today we celebrate what I consider to be proof of it, which is the resurrection of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for the miracle that you raised Jesus from the dead. And we proclaim it as our victory. We say thank you for what you've done in Jesus and also what it means for those of us who have decided to follow you and whose lives are hidden in Christ. I pray, Lord, for every possible taste of resurrection life that you would be willing to bless us with as humans who live in the in-between. We know that we will still experience brokenness, but we pray for you to renew us day by day. Would you renew this church? And would, Father, would you renew this world? We pray like Jesus told us to, to ask for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.